Hello, Bill. Good morning, Matt. Welcome to the DMZ, everybody. Thursday, March 2nd. Uh, sorry, I missed you last week. It's good to be back. Yes, we, I know you were off gallivanting and uh, some posh resort, uh, <laughs> but that's okay. That's okay. I, I held down the fort here. I feel I feel posh is strong, but this probably was the most uh, outside of my honeymoon, probably the the, the biggest trip I've done. You got to do it once in a while, man. Yeah. Uh, life moves pretty fast and all that. So, but I'm glad glad to have you back here. It is you said March second. That's uh, that is a milestone. We're through you know February. Fe- February is like a, a nasty month usually. It's been actually pretty good here. But uh, just psychologically, I feel like maybe uh, going into March is is a good thing. Uh, and it's it seems like uh, you know outside of the grinding war in Ukraine, uh, uh, we're not beset with you know suffocating crises. I mean, obviously, there's always something going on. Either these Palestine train development, of course, um, but. Uh, you don't get a sense of a White House under siege, uh, even the debt limit stuff, which is not resolved. There isn't a there isn't high anxiety around it right now. I mean, again, I've been out of it for a week, so maybe, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe no, you well, you, you missed the East Palestine train derailment uh, saga. And this happened weeks ago, but this past week it really came to a head. Um, and uh, there were, you know, call, Joe Biden still has not gone. And so I wrote a piece saying that he ought to go. But uh, it seems like we've moved on from that now. Um, but yeah, I, mean, for, I, mean, for, I mean, I don't, I don't want to be I don't want to trivialize what happened there and, and what the people there are going through. But I think in the annals of White House political crises, it's not I mean, a, a, a local disaster um, is not that's going to drag an administration, you know, into the, well, into the abyss. Well, I do think that there was a Katrina-esque feel going on there for a few days. And uh, Tim well, Miller- Some, some people were trying to gin that up. I mean, and I'm and not, not trying to d- diminish this, the, what the people are going through, but you, you do have people, it seems, both on the right and the left, who not just have it in for Biden, but it, maybe more acutely in it for Buttigieg. And try, I mean, how many times has the Secretary of Transportation been like publicly called out? Where's the Secretary of Transportation? Where's Ray LaHood? Where's Norm Mineta? That doesn't typically happen. But there's an extra expectation for Buttigieg because everyone knows he, he's a potential White House contender one of these days. And so people are trying to, you know, take him down a peg now. Well, I have no doubt that there are political motivations behind this, but I'm telling you, Bill, uh, there were a couple of days there where this was looking really dicey. I mean, first of all, you've got the overhead uh, of of the train derailment, which just looks horrific. We've got video of this like black smoke plume going up into the air. You know, there's we know that that, uh, you know, I guess the uh, the, the company in, in conjunction, I'm assuming with Governor DeWine chose to, um, I guess, burn some of the toxins that were being hauled and. You know, uh, there are videos of of uh, a water that that looks uh, certainly not potable. Um, you see clips of politicians like DeWine and Buttigieg going in and like drinking glasses of water on camera. Mm-hmm. It's sort of like Mr. Burns being forced to eat the, the three eyed <laughs> fish uh, on The Simpsons. Um, I think you missed it, man. Seriously, there were a couple days where this was looking ugly. And, and, and Tim Miller over at the Bulwark made, I think, a really smart point. Um, he said, basically, 
there's an attempt to make this the the sort of to make this Katrina in reverse. Mm -hmm. And uh, and in this case, it would be Joe Biden doesn't care about poor white people. Mm -hmm. That was the theme. That was the message. And I think it was really being pushed kind of effectively. It's a devastating message for Biden and Democrats to endure. Um, But it does seem like in the last couple of days, uh, the world has moved on. And and maybe that's just a, a product of uh, of the fact that um, there hasn't been any proof, I guess, uh, that there's major contamination, despite, you know, despite the fact that it seems really scary that there would be this kind of derailment uh, with chemicals and toxins and stuff. Well, yeah, and I, I haven't I haven't read up on it, so I, I, I'm not a person who can comment on the specifics of the uh, aftermath, uh, but it does sort of confirm my prior that people were looking to make this a scandal and were eager to make it a scandal and were speculating about why it could be a scandal before they actually had the facts that it was a scandal. Well, I mean, there were, it's, it's such good TV though. in the sense that, again, I mentioned the visuals, the optics that we have, the, the overhead shot of the train derailment, um, the the video of the the smoke plume and all that. Then you've got the pictures of politicians, you know, sort of performatively drinking glasses of water. Um, and then you'll just go there and just interview random people. And I'm sure Fox News <laughs> hasn't necessarily just interviewed random people, mm-hmm. but the sort of man on the street interviews, people are saying that they're sick and that, you know, would you, uh, you know, would you drink this water? I have no, and pe- people are claiming that they're, that they've been sick. And now this could be like some sort of mass hysteria. This could be a psychological thing, or I'm willing to believe that, you know, actually there could be something uh, that is very detrimental that has come from this. But there are a lot of videos of man on the street, woman on the street saying that they've been sickened by this. So um, it, re- it did remind me a little bit of Katrina and going back to the uh, reverse Katrina thing, you know, this is an area that Democrats used to own. I mean, both both geographically and philosophically. You know, there was a time when geographically these working class white enclaves were kind of union, blue collar Democratic areas. Um, and I think this area went like 72 percent for Donald Trump last time. And also, I think this used to be the kind of thing where Democrats, you know, Michael Moore would show up with a camera crew and be all about feeling our pain and like documenting this and how well, the, maybe, the little maybe guys he still will. Well, it's a, he's a little late to the game. Maybe he will. But my point is, I think that this is part of the reordering where Republicans, fair or not, right or wrong, seem to have changed the narrative when it comes to the work, the working class uh but I, but I do think, and I know David Sorota's operation was uh, pushing this as well. I mean, I think there's definitely folks on the left that want to stake their claim to this. Also, I, I saw there was a column by Greg Sargent and Paul Waldman at the Washington Post uh, being nice to Republicans and say, "Look at these liberal things Republicans are proposing. They want they want stronger regulation of of rail safety. You know, let's let let's." You know, we're skeptical that they're on the level, but let's welcome in and try to work with them. And now there is a bipartisan bill with you know JD Vance and Sherrod Brown working together on. Uh, so you know, the, so there's a certain reordering element there that you don't see uh, certain you know Trumpish, uh, uh, Steve Bannonish Republicans uh, who aren't reflexively defending the corporation here. Uh, and are willing to entertain 
regulatory proposals uh, because it's 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 seen as being an allegiance with a constituency that is naturally with them for culture war type type reasons. So you may see some overlap. You may see some overlap, but that's not necessarily. Uh, I mean, maybe some element of sort of party switching, but also a chance for there to be overlap that could actually lead to some positive policies. Well, apparently Donald Trump actually um, did uh, uh, deregulated the railroads. Um, I, I don't know that uh, that the changes that were implemented by the Trump uh, administration would have you know caused or or not doing so would have prevented this particular derailment. But uh, it has been pointed out that Trump worked with like big train <laughs> to uh, to deregulate. Uh, and so that that has been uh, a, a pushback. But, you know, a lot of this bill, as you know, and I, my argument is uh, that politicians ought to go. You got to be there, even if it's just perfunctory, even if it's sort of window dressing. It's part of the job of leadership is showing up. And so I I dinged Biden a little bit. Um, and you know what happened too, Bill, while you were out? Um, Biden went Biden went to Ukraine. And um, I'm glad he did. And I think his leadership in Ukraine has actually been pretty solid. But that also opened the door for people in East Palestine to say like, why did he go to you? He cares more about a foreign country than he does about you know this town in Ohio, and there's a and there's a, and there's a Trumpist element there to say, yes. he, 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 why does he care about Ukraine's border, not our border? Why are you spending money yep. there and not here? You know, there's a narrative there that they want to push. Or Biden has gone to a lot of local. He went to the floods in Kentucky, for example. Uh, so it's not like he never goes to local things, um, but it is always a delicate presidential and presidential staff decision. You know, when does the president go? I mean, local things happen all the time. They don't—they don't all get presidential attention. You know, George W. Bush's administration. You know, uh, I remember very early on there was um, uh, there was a riot in Cincinnati, uh, and some people thought it was the kind of thing that uh, Bill Clinton would have gone to to try to to try to tamp things down. And the Bushes were like, "No, we don't do that. You know, we're not—we're not, we're not going to make every little thing." you know, a giant controversy and have the president drag down that we have an agenda, we have a, we have an itinerary, we have a schedule, we're going to stick to it. Uh, so there's, a, it's, so one hand, yeah, you should show up, but it's also philosophical. When do you show up? I mean, what what yeah. are you emphasizing? Uh, so oh, one that it's a little surprising Biden hasn't because he tends to, he, he, he does tend to show up. He does tend to go to things. Well, Trump uh, went, Trump went there. Um, which now makes it hard for Biden to go because mm -hmm. it was, at this point he has stayed away mm -hmm. to the point where showing up is sort of an admission of guilt almost to a well, certain well, and other, but other administration officials have, I mean, Buttigieg yeah. has, right? Yeah. Yeah. Buttigieg went, but also late, late, too late, mm -hmm. too late in terms of the optics. Again, look, I don't think that it's important for a politician to be on the ground uh, substantively. But I do think in terms of the optics, which are important, not only for getting elected, uh, because, by the way, people forget. But, um, you know, there was a, a study that came out after Joe Biden got elected. I, I could pull it up. That basically the, the reason Biden got elected, it was not because he was able to turn out 
you know, the Clinton, the, the Hillary Clinton or the Obama coalition. Um, he actually kind of underperformed there. It was he did less bad amongst non-educated whites, basically. Well, and also um, right-wing college kids, suburbanites, the Romney, the Romney voters yeah, came over. Yeah. Yeah. And so he just did less bad, which is, you know, on the margins, it makes a huge difference, especially when we're talking about the Electoral College, where if you win a state, um, then you win the state. So uh, Biden, you would think, would be attuned to this, right, that like he can't completely surrender. Now, again, oh, he's not going to win Ohio no matter what. But I think people were paying attention to this in Pennsylvania and Michigan and places like that. Right. So um, anyway, I don't think it's. It, it didn't turn out to snowball the way it might have, but I, there were a couple days there, Bill, I'm telling you, man, where it was looking a little bit dicey, but it, it feels like it is blown over for the most part. Well, I mean, if this, if this was not, if this was not made political and polarizing, if this was, I mean, Biden and McConnell went to the Kentucky floods together. There wasn't a sense of like, this is somebody's fault. Yeah. Uh, now if Biden goes and there's some sort of town, hall, there might be a bunch of Trumpers yelling at him and like, pushing forth crazy conspiracy theories about what the administration was doing here. So I'm sure there's a hesitation for that, that reason. But let me ask you one last question about this. Cause again, I wasn't following it super closely. So how do you think Buttigieg acquitted himself? Uh, did, did, did he salvage his reputation in the end by going, uh, or is this too much of a black mark? Cause he's too late. I feel like there's, there's two Buttigieg modes. There's the guy who is dazzling on Fox. Why isn't every why is it why don't Democrats go on Fox? Why can't they follow a Buttigieg judge? He's so good at turning things around and like not getting caught in their traps. And then there's the Buttigieg who uh makes a mistake but is really good at apologizing for it, like owns it and like take takes takes the heat and takes the responsibility. It doesn't let it get out of hand. Um do you do you think he owned it well enough? Or do you think he comes out of this diminished? He comes out of this diminished, Bill. Um, I'm glad he went. I think it was good for him that he went. It, it sort of stanched the bleeding a little bit. But um, he's had a rough year, man. I mean, we're talking about the FAA issues and the plane, all the airline problems we've had. And now tra planes, trains, and automobiles. Bill, it's not been a good gig for him. It's not been a good year. And um, what happened with, with Buttigieg going there, man, uh, there were a couple things I saw. Now, you have to understand what I might be seeing is on Twitter, right? So, or Fox News. But I'll give you an example of two things I saw from Buttigieg's visit, which which weren't great. One, he was speaking and he said, like, you'll have to forgive me. I lost my train of thought. And um, that probably, <laughs> I don't know if it hit him that that wasn't the best thing to say. <laughs> but that sort of thing happens to all of us. And he's a great communicator by and large, but not that time. The other thing is, his con there was um, one of these, I guess, probably right wing um, uh, journalists there with a camera who kind of went up and kept asking um, his press secretary or his, his, his comms director, like, why isn't Joe Biden here? Why haven't you done this? Why? And, and it just sort of relentless. And they got that all on video and she w couldn't answer, had no answer and like kept asking them to turn off the camera. So it's like one of those things where, I mean, this is, I guess, the danger of Joe Biden going. It's maybe why Biden at this point maybe doesn't want to go um, because it, it could lead to other other uh, other problems. But um, I think that uh, overall, it's probably good that he went, but it was too late. And uh, this 
this just compounds his uh, tough, tough year. So, um, so Trump did go. Uh, and he said, I, he said something to the effect of, I haven't forgotten you. You're mm-hmm. not, you're not forgotten. Uh, I don't think DeSantis went, but he's gone other places. He seems to be quasi campaigning, though he has not announced yet. He has, and he's got a book out. Um, by the way, the book apparently is so far selling better than any political memoir ever. I heard that, that's a low bar. <laughs> Well, Barack Obama. Um, you say, you're uh, saying this is selling better than Barack Obama's post-presidential memoir. I, you know, I just saw Eric Nelson, who's a, uh, a, a he's a, I think what is his Twitter handle? Literary. I can't remember. Anyway, he's a a book publisher, really smart guy. Uh, I just happened to see it on Twitter that that DeSantis is off to a faster start than anyone. Well, I'm, I'm curious. Eric is his Twitter handle, and I recommend I'm curious it. what that means exactly because you could have a fast start. Yeah, uh, you got a lot of pre-orders, uh, and of course, sometimes pre-orders are things that you do yourself. You know, um, Pompeo got dinged because the, his operation bought a lot of his books. Um, but does your book have legs? Does it? I mean, how, how much does it sell over the course of weeks and months? It seems like this is somewhat organic. And I say that because there have been like uh, lines of people outside of bookstores waiting to get Anvil. And I saw that there are even Trump supporters who are showing up um, and sort of heckling the DeSantis people. Trump supporters are showing up with signs outside. The whole world's gone crazy since you've been gone, Bill. You can't leave us again. (laughs) Well, I'm just looking at um, the National Review here. From yesterday. So DeSantis's publisher said the biggest first week in sales for any book by a sitting politician or presidential hopeful. That's good. Uh, so and it could be that it, it could be that Eric Nelson is his publisher. So I mean, like, you know, full, you know, I don't know, but it's very possible. But regardless, well, this is, uh, Eric Nelson, is vice president, editorial director of Broadside Books, tweeted that book, DeSantis book sales record are going to be bigger than the first week of sales for Ben Carson, Donald Trump, Joe Biden, and maybe even Barack Obama. Uh, so and now is he and, and he's comparing that to audacity of hope, not to uh Dreams of my Pro- father. Pro- no, Promised Land, which was post the post presidential memoir. Um, so Still, I- pretty rarefied company. I mean, as these things go. Yeah, but let's. I mean, so Obama's Audacity of Hope sold sixty six thousand seven hundred eighty six copies in its first week. I mean, book sale. Like, you don't need to sell out of books to be number one in anything because most people don't buy books. Yes. So you could you could sell if if you sold three thousand books. In your first week, you could potentially, it all depends on what else is selling, but you could potentially make the New York Times bestseller list by selling 3,000 books in your first week. Right. Um, not number one, but make the list. So, yeah. So, 60, what'd you say? 66,000? That, that's a good. Yeah. So, I mean, if the Sandus sells 100,000 books, like that's gangbusters for our first week or two weeks for, for a political book. <laughs> It doesn't mean like you have the hearts and minds of 80 million people that are going to like get you like the president. This is, you're talking about real niches of, of people. But I think, but I do think it's indicative of something. I mean, there is an excitement out there 
um, you know, Andrew Cuomo didn't sell many books, as I recall. Obama is a promised land, which is the post-presidential memoir, sold 887,000 copies in its first day. Man. And Michelle Obama is becoming sold $725,000 in its first day. So we're talking, you know, magnitudes of difference here for a yeah. political candidate book. Uh, look, it's indicative of something like there's there's a DeSantis fan base out there. There's no denying that. It just, you just don't over extrapolate. That means like he's got this all locked up and that there's like DeSantis mania happening all across the country. Well, we should probably talk about this a little bit, Bill. So while you were gone, um, there were a couple polls and polls have you know, some polls still show DeSantis winning. But there have been a few polls that show I think Fox News had one that showed Trump up big over DeSantis. Yeah. And so um, there's been kind of a, the new conventional wisdom this week is that uh, nothing's changed. It's still Donald Trump's race to lose. I mean, this is what Morning Joe was this morning, basically, as we're as we're talking. One of the messages on Morning Joe this morning was this is still Trump's party. Nothing has changed. You got to go through Trump. Um, and I uh, I don't know what to think about that, but uh, but it, that's that's been the theme. I mean, people, whether it's Trump's party or not, like that, like which which narrative is getting primacy in the media depends on like what's the most recent data point. You know, J.D. Vance wins the Ohio primary and the general. Well, wasn't the when he won the primary? Oh, it's Trump's party. He made that happen. Uh, and then Trump's Trump can't get anything happening in Georgia. Oh, it's not Trump's party. It was moving away from him. Uh, so it's a divided party, number one, uh, and. Whether DeSantis can get enough of the anti-Trump vote to win is simply an untested proposition at this point because uh, he's still not that well known amongst the entire primary electorate. And so I, I mean, even the, when I see a number where he's particularly strong or he's beating Trump head to head, for example, he tends to do better with Trump head to head than in a multi-candidate field. Um but obviously he's you know, number one or number two, depending on what uh, what you're basing it on. Uh, I have little evidence that whatever that DeSantis, num DeSantis number is, that it's firm. That, that, that he had, that all, whatever that number is, it's all diehards who are with DeSantis. It's DeSantis or die for them. Uh, I think he's still, no one's really kicked those tires. He hasn't really been in the scrum with Trump and others yet. Um, and... You can't, I mean, I, look, he's got just as good a shot at it as anybody, but making projections at this point when they're, when the battle yeah. hasn't really been joined, that's insane. Well, we need, we, that's what we do though. We need content, Bill. And let me say, uh, Fox and Friends this morning, I think I saw this at Fox or Axios, one of those sites, they, they put up the video, but uh, they, Fox does this thing where they'll like go to a diner and just interview. I, I, I saw this clip. Did you see this? Yeah, I So did. it's like, you know, 50 old white people right. at a diner in a Florida um, diner, right? It's a Florida. Yeah. It's a Florida diner. Um, and pretty much everyone said they, it, would, it was, uh, uh, I can't remember the guy's name, but not Steve Ducey, the other guy from, from Fox and friends, um, went around with the, with the microphone and said like, who do you want to be president? And it was like, Donald Trump, Donald Trump. Right. Um, there was one woman wearing a DeSantis shirt right? and she was sort of, it could go either way. You right. know what I mean? But everybody else was like 100% locked in on Trump. One person said Trump, Nikki Haley is vice president. So. Right. 
But it's this all. This is very, very early. I mean, like, I'm not, I'm not opposed to making to doing early analysis of things, but but you don't. We don't over extrapolate where with with excessive certainty. Uh, what, what's really tough in analyzing the Republican primary is. I mean, we've we've talked about lanes before, and I and I do believe like lanes exist, and there's demo and there's, there's demographic. Um, uh, uh, factions that occur, you can kind of and you can do a certain amount of gaming out, like and trying to turn how one can piece a coalition together based on demographic patterns. But where the, where the lanes get where the lines get painted now in the Republican electorate, I think is very fuzzy. I mean, you just haven't had a former president in a presidential primary ever in the modern presidential primary system. Uh, we have a rough sense that DeSantis does better with college-educated Republican primary voters and Trump does better with non-college Republican primary voters, uh, uh, which is indicative that the college-educated voters are looking for a Trump alternative. But it doesn't tell me that they're sold that DeSantis is th- their only choice. They won't necessarily go to go somewhere else. Uh and I don't think it means that DeSantis is locked in to a college-educated lane. He's got plenty of messaging and positioning, which has appealed to non-college folks. Uh, so uh, I, it's way early to, to say, like, that's the battle, the college DeSantis versus the non-college Trump, because those those mm-hmm. get cross very easily. Uh, yeah. uh, but there, is, uh, there are two events this weekend, Bill, that, that – Maybe uh, our microcosms of what you're talking about, right? CPAC is happening at the Gaylord Hotel in D.C. Um, this week, and Donald Trump will be there. Um, Ron DeSantis will not be there. However, there is a Club for Growth meeting in Palm Beach, Florida, and that will be kind of a cattle call. And I think DeSantis, I think DeSantis is going to be among the cattle being called. I didn't realize there was a competing event. Yeah, that's pretty. That's pretty brazen of Club for Growth to 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 double book, you know, on CPAC's weekend. Well, I don't know if they did that intentionally. However, how, how do you not know that? Well, look, because I'll tell you why. Because they book this thing like a year in advance uh, to lock down. They always go to the breakers. Almost always, sometimes it's the uh, the Ritz, but it's usually the breakers. You, you sign a contract a year in advance and lock it down. And I think CPAC is much more shooting from the hip. I mean, they're in Hungary and they're in Texas. You know, it's like, so. Um, Do you, you think I, CPAC tried to strong arm club for growth, not vice versa? Or just a coincidence. But whatever the case may like, you know. Whatever. Some, someone booked first. I mean, when you schedule a visit that, you check things like that. That is, that is a standard thing to do to make sure that you have a clear weekend. Somebody knew the other guy was going first and went ahead anyway. I, I don't maybe, but I don't read too much into it. But I will say, what is interesting is who goes to which one, right? You could do both. It's happened. You could easily because CPAC's like usually Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Uh, the club for growth is usually two or three days. You could speak at both. It's not impossible. People have done it. Um, but not this time. People are skipping out in CPAC. And there, there are stories um, that uh, CPAC is having uh, trouble, that, uh, that it's not, there's not a lot of excitement about it this well, year. I, and maybe- I mean, I think CPAC is no longer 
the event of the year for conservatives. And so it's not, you know, event suicide to have an event the same weekend because not everyone feels obligated to go. Yeah, I think that's right. It, it, it once upon a time was kind of uh, a must attend. And if you were a mainstream conservative in the biz, in the biz, uh, you kind of needed to be there. I, I probably went, I've probably been to 20 CPACs over the course of my life. If anyone checks, you won't find that because I don't think I've ever paid for a single one. So I've never <laughs> registered for a CPAC, but I've been to probably 20 of them, you know, with media credentials, I'm sure, and all that sort of thing. Um, but, it, you know, and back in the day, it used to be like the organizers, by and large, were serious people. But there still was sort of um, uh, a carny component to some of the attendees. Like I remember in, I guess it was like, say, 2011, as we were hitting into uh, the 2012, I can't remember if it was the 2012 cycle or the 20, 2008 cycle. But one year, apparently, allegedly, Sam Brownback had one of his minions dress up as a fl flipper of the dolphin and follow Mitt Romney around CPAC everywhere he went. Like that's the kind of hijinks that went on. Um, but now it's become more like, let's have Bolsonaro speak, or, you know, let's have who that's, like that's, Orban. That's not even speak. the worst. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I think uh, th this is just evidence that the, not just the Republican Party, but the conservative movement has fragmented. I mean, I mean, CPAC was one of the main drivers drilling that this party and this movement was based on three pillars of you know limited government, uh, you know, li limited government family values and and um, I, I, limited government strong military uh, family values, something like that. Low taxes, you know, the the, the basic stuff, the basic bumper sticker stuff. CPAC was the, I mean, I, I went to one CPAC, you know, I mean, I've obviously seen clips on TV and whatnot, but I went to one in 2007 and, you know, and I've been to progressive conferences and like the vibe was just totally different. Like CPAC felt very top down. You were spoken at, at CPAC. There's one speaker after That's another. That's how we liked it. Drilling That's, you with a message, yeah. drilling you with a, with a, an ideological framework. And that was intended to hold an otherwise disparate, conservative movement together. Uh, and CPAC is not serving that function now. It is a, because the, the conservative movement is not unified over a three, set of three or four principles. You know who is? Mike Pence. I wrote a column this week at The Beast uh, talking about how, you know, in, in the past week, Mike Pence has sort of staked out, you know, we shouldn't be using the, the power of government to try to get revenge on private companies, mm -hmm. you know. Unlike Ron DeSantis. Right. And, and Chris Nunu has tried to make similar arguments. Pence also said we should be supporting Ukraine. Mm -hmm. And I forget the other thing, but these three things that Mike Pence uh, staked out this week that would have been just conventional mainstream conservative Republic Reaganite politics. And now it's kind of newsworthy that he's staking these things out because uh, they are now not obvious things that a conservative Damn, would support. Mike Pence is a Ronald Reagan, Matt Lewis Republican. He's he's waiting for that big Matt Lewis endorsement to, to get him <laughs> over the top. Well, I think that will help him about as much as Jeb's endorsement of Ron DeSantis uh, has. Did you is see that, that? Is that formal? 
No, it's not a formal endorsement. It's not even an endorsement exactly. But Jeb, and there was some interview uh, recently where Jeb was singing the praises of Ron DeSantis. <laughs> and uh, that's probably the last thing in the world Ron DeSantis would want <laughs> is Jeb Bush to do that, right? He should. He needs Jeb to attack him. And so, um, yeah, like I wouldn't be upset if, if Mike Pence were the nominee. Uh, I, I don't think it's going to happen because I think that uh, – you know, as I wrote, he's like a, you know, he's like the uh, uh, the mosquito frozen in the amber, you know, in Jurassic Park. Like, like, I'm glad he's around so we can, like, have a control group, you know, to see what happens when there's not prolonged exposure to MAGA. Now, how it is that he's worked for Ronald Reagan, I'm sorry, how it is that he worked for Trump, I don't want to get those two confused, how does that Pence worked for Trump for four years and didn't? succumb to the exposure, I, I do not know. Um, and certainly Pence has sucked up to Trump and it's pathetic and sad and all that. But for whatever reason, philosophically, in terms of policy, Pence is still right where he used to be. So just to wrap wrap this up. Yeah, uh, yeah we should probably, uh, we'll keep it tight today. I, well, I, got, well, I got stuff I mean, to I, do. I, I, mean, I can talk a little bit longer about something else, but just to wrap, but we don't oh, have I to, see, I um, see. But just to wrap up this part of the, the conversation, uh, uh, you know, after Trump has Trump made his waves in Ohio, DeSantis has done a little bit of a speaking run and is headed to Club for Growth. Uh, Nikki Haley at her announcement uh, two weeks ago, um, but, she was quiet, flat but she was quieter since. Pence is making a little bit of noise in, in interviews. Um, and other people who supposedly might run. Tim Scott, Chris Sununu, um, Asa Hutchinson. I don't know who else is really making noise lately. Uh, where do you think this race currently stands? Um, I think it's between Donald Trump and Ron DeSantis. Um, and I think Nikki Haley is running for vice president. I think she's helping herself by doing that. But I think it's between Trump and DeSantis. The two candidates that I'm interested in, uh, and in terms of the impact they might have, are Glenn Youngkin, the governor of Virginia. If he gets in, I think he has a chance to be like a more likable version of Ron DeSantis. If Ron DeSantis kind of implodes, which very well could happen, you could see some of that energy go to uh, Glenn Youngkin. And I think Youngkin could really uh, potentially um, build a coalition of people like me and people like DeSantis. Um, but I think I think the only way that works is if this, if DeSantis uh, implodes and sort of is is not a factor. Um, the other person I'm interested in is Tim Scott. I think he is incredibly uh, uh, exciting and optimistic. I'm not sure that that's the right fit for this moment, but I think he could have a bright future. So I'm that's kind of the, the, those uh, uh, Trump, Haley, DeSantis, and then uh, Youngkin and uh, Tim Scott. I think that's an interesting field, and I hope it doesn't get much bigger than that. Do you think, like Tim Scott, I, I, I'm, I remain a little skeptical. This is obviously just, just playing mind games, not being a super good political analyst. Um Neither Yunkin or Scott strike me as having the personality 
to want to get into a scrum with Trump and DeSantis. Yeah. Uh, and so I wonder. And neither I, of them have ever had to. Right. Remember, this, I'm sorry. Youngkin won his primary at a convention um, by virtue of essentially the establishment setting him up to win, as far as I know. And then he was able to play the culture warrior in a general election against Terry McAuliffe, but he never had to fight a tough Republican to to win an election. And I don't think Tim Scott has either, right? Wasn't he appointed by Nikki Haley or something the first time? Um, I think that's right. I think there was a vacancy or something. So yeah. I don't think either of them have ever had to take on someone. I mean, like nobody's ever taken on someone like Trump, but mm-hmm. I don't think they've ever had to fight an internecine battle like that. And they both have just sort of genial personas. You don't get the sense that they're there. They have a great, a great taste for, for blood. Um, now, Scott, I think, is sitting on more money. Uh, and look, that's important. You got to be able to pay for a campaign. You know, it's, I mean, I'm sure it's very hard for Nikki Haley right now to sustain the initial amount of press attention she got because she has to go out there and raise money to be able to like pay staff to do things. Um, yeah. uh, so Scott, I'm a little more comfortable saying he's going to jump in because I think he just he, he logistically can. Uh, whether he sticks with it, I don't know. Uh, and I'm curious if Yunkin. I think I think Youngkin has a lot of personal money. I don't know if he wants to be a self-funder, but uh, but is he going to look at the numbers and say, "Am I really able to do this? Is this really yeah. going to be the best use of my time for this year, or I should I worry?" We'll see. Yeah, and Youngkin Youngkin can't run for re-election in Virginia. But he, but he, but he, he could run for Senate. He could, yeah. Uh, against it would be against uh, uh, what's his name? Tim Kaine. Yep, Tim Kaine. Um, but the NRSC is trying to recruit this guy named Hung Cal, who ran. Uh, for Congress in Northern Virginia, and he lost. Um, but they're 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 sort of wooing him, and so that leads me to believe that maybe they don't think Yunkin is going to get in. Mm-hmm. Um, but w- whatever whatever the case may be, Bill, look, I, I don't want to advance this narrative because it could be uh, it's, it's it's a dangerous narrative, right? Because in 2016, the lesson was everyone thought we'll let someone else take out Donald Trump. Let let Rubio take care of him. Let Cruz take care of him, and and I'll stay, uh, you know, above the fray and swoop in. And so I, I don't like banking on that theory. I think it's a dangerous thing to think, but it could happen, right? It's not impossible to imagine a scenario where somehow Trump and DeSantis destroy each other, and a nice Tim Scott or an amic, you know, an, an amiable Glenn Youngkin somehow wins. Like it's, it's. I wouldn't bank on it. I think it's a dangerous uh, strategy to uh, to employ. But it is within the realm of possibility that that you know we're always fighting the last war. And so if the opposite of Trump would be someone who is nice, uh, but I don't think you could be like someone who is from who was vanquished by Trump, right? You you can't be Marco Rubio um, because he's already been sort of brought to heel by Trump, but a younger new person like Yunkin, who kind of arrived on the scene in the aftermath of Trump, um, maybe there's a, an appetite for that. So, I mean, that's, that's the logic of getting in. You just have to have enough stomach to deal with everything that would happen between now and the point where just maybe Trump and DeSantis, you know, you know, destroy each other and have the money to, to be in the game at that point. Uh, and that's, that's a lot of ifs and I'm just not 100% convinced that either Yunkin or Scott are prepared to pull that trigger. But of course that's just psychological, you know, guessing. 
Yeah, what do you think of before, so before we go, what do you think about this Vivek Ramaswamy? Am I, am I pronouncing his name right? I don't know. I know that he doesn't know what the nuclear triad is. <laughs> Did you see that? He went on Hugh I, Hewitt. And Hugh has a couple of questions he asks people. Um, he asks them if they've read The Looming, Looming Tower. Tower. Um, and he asks them if they know what the nuclear triad is. Um, and he didn't. So like the, that's the, like, these are questions he always asks. Like you, you should, you should like read a Hugh Hewitt transcript and like learn the answers to those questions. I can't, you know what? Every once in a while I'm driving around, you know, schlepping my kids to the, I spend hours driving them around like a chauffeur, but I can get Hugh on AM. I think it's a, no, it's FM. He comes in on FM. Just a little. And his show is really good, but I, I can't listen to him much because, the, you know, um, it, I just can barely listen to him in certain elevations, I think, here in West Virginia. It's hard. I can only listen to him for like five minutes. But I am like, he'll have like Larry Arn on to talk about Winston Churchill. And it's just like, it's a really good show. I wish I was able. And I, I don't think the podcasts are free. I think you have to kind of be a Salem member. And I'm not willing to to stoop to that. So, <laughs> so, I mean, I, I mean, obviously he's not going to be president. You know, the question is, can he be the Andrew Yang and make himself a conservative celebrity, uh, which he clearly wants to be. I mean, he's running this, these, these woke ink books. Um, uh, the, well, running for president can definitely be a stepping stone to uh, fame and attention. So this is my, my, this is my gut opinion about it. I'm, I'm curious. Reading. My gut opinion is, uh, you know, certain people who have used presidential primaries to elevate themselves, <coughs> they have had an idea that was a little ahead of the curve and changed the nature of the race by their by their entrance and the, by their ability to draw attention to that issue. So Andrew Yang had this whole thing about uh, universal basic income and um, you know, losing jobs to robots. Uh, I mean, he didn't invent these ideas, but they weren't things that were otherwise being discussed in the primary. Yes, so he, as a writer uh, with the, the bots and the AI coming for our jobs, like I'm about to vote for Andrew Yang. Right. right. What? The whole anti-woke thing, like Vivek did not, inv he's not the first person to bring this up in the Republican primary. I mean, Trump, DeSantis, Haley, they're all doing it. So yeah. what does he bring that's really new to this discussion that could get him uh, a level of celebrity they didn't already have. Uh, so I'm, I'm skeptical that he can be the Yang. Cause I don't think he, unless he can come up with something fresh. I mean, that's the value of being a, a no chance candy is that you can take a position that, that no one else will take. And I don't, I don't get the sense he's done that. There's not a lot of fresh ideas and thinking on the American right these days. So but maybe, maybe he'll get there. Maybe he'll have his big. Uh, you're not. You're big... not impressed. You not don't, yet. You don't, no. you, you don't. You don't see what he has that would make him special. Not yet. I just. Uh, I think the stakes are too high to mess around with. To you know, to with a vanity campaign to try to get attention. I just you know, I'm not into that right now. We need. We need to try to uh, have a better Republican. Than Donald Trump be the nominee. You, you, you crossed I'm over in uh, 2020 to vote for Biden in the primary. Uh, are you, you going to do that this year for Marion Williamson? Well, I do kind of like her new age vibe. I'm not going <laughs> to lie, but I don't think that's going to happen. It was, you know, this really messed me up, Bill. So I voted in the primary 
in Virginia, where I used to be a resident, I voted for Biden to stop Bernie Sanders, right. who was <laughs> surging at that point. Right. And um, and unfortunately, it has led people to believe that I voted for Joe Biden in the general, which I didn't do. And I wrote a whole column explaining mm-hmm. why I wouldn't do. Uh, I'm voting for him in the primary. Here's why I will not be voting for him in the general. Uh, but people can't think like that's too complicated for people. That's too many. You know, if you voted for Biden, you've, I've had family who like heard rumor or friends, friends, fa- friends and family who like will like pull me aside and be like, they, they heard a rumor that I voted for Joe Biden. And like there is an element of truth to it. I have to explain it to them, but it's still um, it still requires a long, long explanation. You know, if being a Republican is too hard for you, Matt, you know, because they because people can't understand complicated uh, positions. You know, there's another party waiting for you anytime. They got to earn my vote, man. Either <laughs> side, I'm I'm ready, willing, and able. You already got, got you already got you got rid of row. You know, so the, what's holding you back? <laughs> All right, man. Um, on that note, before you. Uh, before you get me to do something I don't want to do, I got to bail. I got to write a column, man. Anything you want to, you've been out, but anything yeah, I, you want to plug? Actually, I do, I do have something to plug because I wrote something before I went away about uh, what's happening in Israel. Uh, you know, the the right wing in Israel is trying to essentially um, get rid of the independent judiciary and pass a law that would allow the parliament to override most judicial decisions. And it's tearing the country apart. There's been protests in the streets for, for, for weeks. Um, People are even talking about civil war and violence, that it's so serious. And I wrote a piece for the Washington Monthly saying, isn't it great that Joe Biden didn't do that? You know, that we, we didn't tear ourselves apart over this, even though there was pressure on him to do that. And of course, Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema play yeah. a role in that, too. But, um, but Bill, correct me if I'm wrong. My understanding is that in Israel, um, these th- this Supreme Court or whatever you want to call it is is not they don't have a constitution that sort of writes in that there needs to be, and that these judges are also not, uh, they don't go through the same process as ours. They're sort of like intellectuals or elites that somehow get these positions. It's, well, it's kind of apples and oranges to compare to America. Well, I don't, I don't, I mean, the systems are different. I don't think it's so apples and oranges that you can't make comparisons. Uh, and I do lay this out in the article, but I'll try to do this quickly. There's no constitution in Israel. In fact, the founders who were socialists explicitly argued against having a constitution for the same reasons that you have majoritarian impulses on the left today. Why should there be unelected bodies getting in our way? We want to do stuff that people like thinking that the the future was theirs and and there would be a a left-wing country forever. Um, There are things called basic laws that the, the parliament passes and a couple of basic laws that were passed in the early nineties had uh, human rights elements to them. Uh, that indicated uh, a certain primacy that the Supreme Court said uh, in the mid-90s, this is akin to being constitutional. And we have the power to say other laws don't adhere to these human rights basic laws. And we have the the power of judicial review to to uphold that. So that that was sort of their Marbury v. Madison moment. Uh, and, uh, And so now... You know the parliament is trying to pass a law that would so so like like legally they can do it like there there is no constitution that would prevent them from passing a law asserting that kind of authority. Uh, 
So in that sense, it's apples and oranges to America. But I think you see, fundamentally, independent judiciaries are necessary for sustainable democracies. So, and and to your, your other point, they get on the, the body of the court through a committee, through a judicial selection committee that again was created by a law. And that committee is a mix of elected and non-elected people. Um, uh, they want to pass a new law, the current Knesset, that would change the composition of that committee. So essentially the ruling party controls that committee and they can they can essentially pack the court that way. Uh, so it's all things designed to give the ruling party. And again, there's no um, legislative and executive check and balance in a parliamentary system. This would say you got no check and balance at all. Judiciary, yeah. legislative, executive, it's all one party. And that uh, democracies work when people who lose elections still feel like it's their country. Still feel like they have a voice and have a way to exert some kind of influence. And they're creating a system, they're trying to in Israel, where if you're on the outs, you get nothing. And that, of course, gets people into the streets saying this is not a democracy anymore. So that's where I think the parallels are relevant. And America has not gone down that path because we created a system that made it hard to do. And thankfully, Democrats didn't try to smash that in the two years they had a, tri- tri- a trifecta. All right. So check out that column. Uh, We'll be back here in the DMZ next week, I think. Yep. Take care. All right. Have a good one.